Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Hey folks, this is Kevin. Coming up on today's episode, you'll hear Melanie Hamlet. He stuck his finger up my butt and then went, mm, and then tried to stick it in my mouth. I was going to spare you that detail, but I don't fucking care anymore. That and a lot more. But listen, before we dive in here, I just want to remind you, the first season of Risk is no longer in our free podcast feed, but those classic episodes are now available in the album section of iTunes for just 99 cents each. And they've had the ads, like this thing you're listening to right now, removed. So you just go right to the stories. So don't forget, look for the classic episodes of Risk in the album section of iTunes today. Now here's the show. Kids, this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and this is Yanko Nilovic behind me now. Calling today's episode Messy, because these four stories that come from our New York and Los Angeles live shows concern situations where folks made messes, or at least found themselves in a funky bunch of junk. In just a bit, we are going to hear from comedian Sean Donovan. But before that, story from the lovely writer-performer Nguyen Do. 
She told this one at the Risk Live show in New York City that we do at the People's Improv Theater once a month, and we call it If It Kills Me. everybody. So about six years ago, I was living in the up-and-coming Long Island City with my fiancé and my pug, and I had a job in finance. One Thursday, I came home, and I knew immediately something was wrong, because the house was clean and the dog was walked. And I asked my fiancé, what's up? And he showed me a crystal pipe. And I swear this is all before breaking bed. Um, my fiancé is everything that I'm not. He's creative, he's a musician, and experimental, even with drugs. But he was a good bad boy. He went to Sabbath every Friday to see his mother. And, um, but he also brought home drugs sometimes. Now, crystal meth. I've tried ecstasy, but in my mind, that was like a party drug that everybody does. And crystal meth was trashy, and like it made you crazy, and it made you do things like climb up a tree naked, and made your teeth fall out. But my fiancé had been smoking it all afternoon, and he seemed fine. In fact, he seemed better than fine. And I thought, well, maybe I'll try it. So I took my first puff, he lit the pipe for me, and I inhaled, and it was amazing. It felt like the world had lifted, and there was not a to-do list that I couldn't do, and that, that I wanted to smoke it again, because that's what crystal meth does, it makes you want to smoke it again. So I said, let me try it. So I tried it. And it sort of smelled like burning Barbie dolls, but I liked that smell. And I thought, oh, crystal smoke is so beautiful. And then we started to bond like we hadn't, hadn't bonded in a long time because we were always fighting. And it came out that I was jealous of his creative pursuits. And he said, well, maybe you need to have your own creative pursuits. And I said, you're absolutely right. And so I ran to my closet and took out my Sharpies and I started to draw little lines for hours. And I was focused and I wasn't wandering around the apartment wondering what to do. And then I, I, I felt great because I was being creative and I, I started to write poems. I even wrote a poem called Ode to Meth. And then, I, and then at 4.30 I decided I want to reconfigure my 94-piece alpha closet system. So I did. I pulled all my clothes out and put them back in and took them back and put them back in. And then it was 7.30, and then I had to go to work. And I got scared that because I was staying up all night that I would get tired of my fiancé. He handed me the crystal pipe, and he said, Honey, you take it to work, and I'll get another one when the store opens. And I was like, Oh, my God. And I was really touched. And I went to work, and it was... Great! I was so efficient, I was really fast in Excel, and my boss really loved me that day. I got so much done. And I came home, and I continued to smoke. But I knew 
that crystal, like any drug, had its repercussions. So I Googled it, and you lose your teeth smoking crystal, not because of just because of the drugs, but because you eat a lot of sugary foods, and you don't brush your teeth for weeks on end. So I said, I'm going to brush my teeth. <laughs> then I realized it's very dehydrating, which is why you get these red lips and red eyes. And so I made myself a giant pitcher of Master's Tonic, which is highly alkalizing to the body, and it's made of lemon, maple syrup, and um, cayenne pepper. And I drank that whenever I smoked Crystal. If I was going to do Crystal, I was going to do it responsibly. (laughs) So I smoked the entire weekend and didn't sleep until Sunday. And I wanted to fall over because I hadn't slept and my body was exhausted, but I wanted to do more crystal because that was what crystal does to you. It makes you want to smoke more crystal. But the drug dealer does not work on Sunday. I guess he goes to church or something. (laughs) But um, I was out of my skin and my fiancé looks at me and he's like, do you want a brick of Xanax or some Ambien to calm down, honey? And I was like, no, that stuff is so bad for you. (laughs) So I fell asleep finally, and Monday came, and like any hangover, I was like, well, that was a nice experience, but I never want to do that again until Thursday came. And I did it again. But I thought, drugs were great. They made you creative. They freed your soul. Everybody should do drugs this way. You just need to know how to be really smart about it and cycle on and off of it and not do it for 48 days straight. So that's what I did. It became a ritual, Thursday through Saturday, Thursday through Saturday. But the time between the cycle started to shrink, and soon I didn't go anywhere without a crystal pipe. But I thought, some people have coffee, I just do crystal. (laughs) I thought maybe I should stop, but I was kind of enjoying this new waif look that I was getting from smoking so much crystal. And my fiancé and I, we were getting along great. So I said, you know, I'm going to stop when, you know, it's a better time. But this decision to stop smoking crystal was taken out of my hands when he couldn't get any more good crystal. And all he could get was the dirty yellow stuff, and we weren't going to stoop that low. So he brought home really good cocaine one time. And now I've tried cocaine once at a party, and I thought it was disgusting. I thought it was decadent, you know, dirty, and it ruined your nose. I wasn't going to do that. But I Googled and found a very non-invasive way to do cocaine. What you could do was mix it with water, and you can put it in a syringe and inject it into your rectum without the needle. It worked great for me. All of a sudden, I felt inspired again, and I ran to my bedroom, and I put on the theme song to Titanic, and I sang, near, far, where, for three hours. And it didn't matter that it sounded terrible, and I couldn't sing, because I was on drugs, and this was fun. And soon, I dropped to 92 pounds. And in my mind, I wasn't an addict. I was using drugs to be creative. I was like Van Gogh. I was like Janis Joplin, except I couldn't paint and I couldn't sing. Soon, I started doing 
ecstasy to come down from cocaine. It was like drug squared. And I started to hallucinate. And I started to black out. And I started to miss more days of work. And it was miserable. And I just wanted to kill myself. Um, and I thought, this is so logical. Because I could just end it right now and start over, just leave my body. But I couldn't. I just couldn't. I wanted to choose death, but I couldn't. So I had to keep trying to get clean. And it wasn't a heroic moment, and it wasn't a monumental time. I just did it over and over again, try to get clean. I even went on a binge of holistic healing retreats. And now, looking back, I was definitely an addict, but I also went on this journey to the dark side where I found hidden there this really deep need to be creative. And now, instead of saying, I'll be creative if it kills me, I say, I'm creative because it makes me feel alive. giggles, a teaspoon of laughter, add one pound of smiles, and then pretty soon after, a new disposition to everyone in the recipe for fun. It makes you want to dance. It makes you want to sing. With some sunny weather Add two pounds of nonsense And mix it together There's plenty forever For everyone In this recipe for fun going all right yeah, someone said I'm pretty affable or come off I think it's just my face I look like wholesome like all-american uh, I'm always I'm, I got a lot of rage and anger and uh, this story happened a few years ago a couple of years ago I'm from uh, Boston I just uh, lost my job in all the different spiteful story ridiculous fashion just had a big blowout telling people to go fuck themselves and uh, <laughs> Throwing keys in lakes, but that's just whatever. So I'm, un I'm unemployed uh, with no hope of a job on the horizon. And uh, I did a comedy show uh, at a bookstore in uh, Cambridge, Massachusetts. So like, Cambridge is a very like liberal, uh, hippie area. Not saying that as a negative, just so you know the kind of people that you're dealing with. Very civic-minded, white. It's Boston, so they're still all white uh, people. It's a very segregated city. Anyway, so I do this show uh, at a bookstore. I got paid $5, which is the most money I've ever made doing comedy. <laughs> and uh, there's this great falafel place across the street from the bookstore uh, called Falafel Palace. So uh, myself and other comedians on the show went over there to get uh, falafel. 
So we're uh, waiting in line. It's busy. It's a popular place. And uh, my friend Teddy uh, goes up and he orders his falafel sandwich. And it comes out pretty quickly. And uh, I go up and I order it uh, from the dude behind the counter who also happened to be the owner. And uh, paid him in the $5 that I made at the show. And then I'm uh, standing back. I'm waiting for my falafel to come out. And uh, Ted's almost done with his. And he's like, hey, where's your falafel? This is a pretty good Ted impression, by the way. <laughs> and uh, why don't you get your falafel? And uh, I was like, yeah, that's a good idea. So I went back up to the counter. And the guy behind the counter is like, yeah, what do you want? And I was like, uh, just waiting on that falafel. I ordered. He's like, you did not order the falafel. And I was like, no, I did. I uh, just was up here a couple minutes ago. Gave you $5. <laughs> And did not ask for a receipt, which I'm regretting right now. And he's like, you did not order the falafel. And I was like, no, seriously, man, I did. And he's like, I remember every face that comes in here. You did not order the falafel. You're a liar. And I was like, Jesus Christ, man. That was like the quickest I've seen someone get disproportionately angry at a situation since I was a child and my dad was on a bender. It's like, did I leave my bike on this guy's lawn? Why is he so mad at me right now? So, like, I turned back to my friends to be like, hey, you guys saw me order that, and they're comics, and they're also from Boston, so they have an attitude, which is just like, oh, he does this all the time. Yeah, he orders food, doesn't pay for it. I'm like, oh, fucking assholes, no help. So this guy got, like, really, like, he was so mad. He came out from behind the counter to chase me out of the store, which I ran out of the store. I'm not fighting anybody, especially a swarthy immigrant, am I right? So he just... <laughs> Those Middle Easterners, they got those curvy knives. You got to watch out for them. They'll cut you right open. So he chases me out. Not only does he chase me and everybody like out of the store, he closes the business down. He shuts off his lights. And it was supposed to, it was probably like midnight. It was supposed to be open till two. He just shut the store down. I was like, could you fucking, what? How did that just happen? And my friends are just laughing at me. I was like, this was fucked up, right? I ordered falafel, I paid for it, and I did not get it. And they're like, yeah, what are you going to do? And I was like, oh, well, what am I going to do? And so I spent the whole night pretty much brooding and uh, <laughs> coming up with a plot. It really upset me. I was in full anger mode. I didn't really sleep much, but I figured I'm going to get this guy. I'm going to do something, and uh, yeah, I'm going to get what I deserve out of this. So it was late night. Uh, I issued a press release to, uh, <laughs> to Fox News. Uh, <laughs> the local Fox News affiliate saying I was going to be down there uh, protesting his business because I figured like Fox News if anyone's going to pick up on a white kid protesting a immigrant Muslim business <laughs> it is going to be Fox News so I figured they were my best shot at revenge and uh, I woke up the next morning it was like a Thursday uh, I didn't have work obviously and I went down to a CVS and I got poster board and a marker and I made a sign that said full awful palace <laughs> and I was real proud of myself and then I uh, got on the train uh, to, I had to take the train down there a few stops and I realized I'm sitting there on the train I was like ah, I should have held off on making the sign <laughs> I wasn't uh, in a crowded place with all these strangers looking at me and I had a moment of humanity where I'm just like what the fuck am I doing what am I doing I, like people looking at me I'm like oh, I feel like an idiot with this stupid sign so anyway I get off at the stop I walk down there at my kind of 
My zeal is a little bit waning at this point. And there's a big, I went at the lunch rush time because it's, it's one at noon. I was like, he's going to have a lot of people there. I go down and I'm waiting in line with my sign and there's a lot of people ordering their sandwiches. Finally, uh, it gets up to me, same guy behind the counter, uh, the owner, and he uh, goes, yeah, yeah, what do you want? And I was like, ah, oh, I thought you remembered every face that ever came in here. <laughs> Side note, I was also wearing the same clothes from the night before to prove a point. <laughs> and... He just kind of stares at me, and the gears are turning in his brain, and he's just like, oh, I remember you. You come in here, and you make the trouble. You make trouble last night. I was like, ah, oh, listen, buddy, I didn't make any trouble. I ordered a sandwich. I gave you money. I did not get the sandwich, and you were very rude to me. I just want my money back and an apology from you for being so rude. And uh, no lie, he pops open the register. He takes out a $5 bill very deftly and just slams it on the counter. He goes... I give you your money back, but I will not apologize because you are a liar, a cheater, and a loser. (laughs) It's like, well, I may be a loser, but with being a loser comes lots of free time, and I'm going to stand outside, and I'm going to picket your business until you come out and apologize to me. And then he came running out from behind the counter. I was like, yee, and I just uh, ran out the store. But, like, he did that with, like, people in there who were still, like, "Mm," ordering their food. It was like... You know, it was sort of soup Nazi-ish. It was really bizarre. So I stood outside um, with my sign, and I was uh, chanting. I had slogans I was chanting. One of them was, uh, good food, but they're rude, because I felt like that was... <laughs> I felt like that was an even-handed uh, thing to yell. Like, it, it's really good falafel. I wanted it, but he was an asshole, so I feel like I was in the right. And the other thing was, uh, the only thing worse than this pun is the service you'll get inside a falafel palace. And so because of the area that it's in, there's a lot of like hippie people coming around, like hipsterish, and they're, uh, they're actually stopping to listen to me, and that's the problem with Cambridge. Uh, they're, they were giving me credence when I deserved none. And... Uh, so people stop by and they're like, mm, what's going on, young man? And I would explain that story and they'd be like, right on, I'm not going in there again. He is very rude. And then they'd walk away. But then other people would hear my story and be like, well, that's your side of the events. I'm going to have to go in there and hear his version. And then they'd come out eating falafel. And I was like, ah, I don't think this is working so good. <laughs> So eventually, I I stood out there upwards of four hours, I would say. (laughs) It was time well spent. I could have been writing the great American novel, but instead, I have emotional issues. So uh, I guess that applies to most writers. Anyway, uh, eventually, like, a camera crew shows up, and I'm like, ah, Fox News, yeah! And it turned out, they were just, like, local guys. It wasn't... uh, the news station, but they were just guys who happened to be uh, going around taking pictures, but they snapped a bunch of pictures of me uh, protesting. They're like, oh, let's get your sign in with his business sign. I was like, yeah, let's do that. And uh, so they're snapping it. So the owner, there's like a window and he can see uh, he could see me this whole time. He had line of sight and I made sure of that. And uh, he sees them come taking uh, photographs and he realizes like, uh-oh, maybe the newspaper's here or something. So he comes running out to try and make amends with me. He's like, ah! What's going on, everybody? Like, now he's like, wacky immigrant guy. And, uh, ah, just me, yay! And, uh, Cousin Larry, or whatever, uh, from that show. So anyway, 
He's like, he goes, look at this crazy guy, huh? He's like, he's got that sign, he spelled falafel wrong, huh? And it's like, ah, English is your second language. So, uh, he's like, why are you out here, man? And I was like, you know I am out here. You were so rude to me. And then just twice now. And he's like, you gave me my, your, my money back, but I really just want an apology from you. He's like, ah, and finally, like... We went back and forth a few times, but eventually he just broke down. He's like, all right, all right, all right. Listen, I'm sorry. I'm very sorry, okay? Can you please take the sign down now? And I was like, sure, yes, that's all I wanted. So then in a a great display of uh, cultural unity, together we both ripped this sign in half. Like, and not since the fall of the Berlin Wall, I think, (laughs) has there been anything so beautiful. And these guys are snapping pictures, and it has to exist somewhere on the internet, but I... Didn't get that guy's email address. I really should have. So anyway, uh, he goes, uh, you know, come in. You come back into the store. I make you the falafel. I make you the falafel. I was like, oh, thanks, man. So I go in there, and he uh, makes me a falafel. And he's like, nah, it's on the house, on the house. I was like, no, nah, man, I want to pay for it. And so I gave him the $5 that he had angrily threw at me. And uh, I gave it back to him. And he was like, uh, you know, uh, He's like, why are you out here, man? And I was just like, yeah, you know, I kind of lost my job in ridiculous fashion, and I had the extra time, and you were jerks, so I, uh, <laughs> I want to get vengeance on you. So I did, and he's just like, you know, my home country, Syria, you see in the news what happens when we try to protest. They shoot us down. But you, you showed me why America is so great. <laughs> Not even close. Not close at all. Like, that was the birth of the Syrian Civil War. It was like 2011, I think. But it's like, that's not close to overthrowing a dictator. Like, that, my protest was like the most white privileged protest in the history of protests. I was actively trying to shut down an immigrant's small business. Like, I don't know. Those are not analogous. But then he, like, I was like, well, yeah, sure, thanks, man. He's like, you know what? You come work for me. You make the falafel. And he offered me a job. I didn't take the job because I was like, this guy's a fucking hothead, and I'm a hothead, and I don't think uh, we'd be good uh, working together. So I didn't take the job. But that, that was the story of the falafel, and uh, I guess that's, that's where it ends. But thank you guys for uh, listening.
with Vintage Trouble behind me now. And before that was comedian Sean Donovan, our monthly show in Los Angeles. Next one of those is on November 21st with Jake Fogelness, Dylan Brody, porn star Connor Habib, and more. And the wonderful Beowulf Jones, who produces the show out there, will be teaching a two-day storytelling workshop for our school, thestorystudio.org, on November 23rd and 24th. So to find out about all our workshops, in person or online, one-on-one, for small groups, just go to thestorystudio.org. Also, let me take a moment to say, with the holidays almost here, you don't have time to go to the post office. But with Stamps.com, you can do it all at your desk. You can buy and print official U.S. postage using your own computer and printer. And right now, you can get this special offer when you use the promo code RISK. It's a no-risk trial, plus a $110 bonus offer, includes a digital scale, and up to $55 free postage. So don't wait. Before you do anything else, go to Stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and enter RISK. That's Stamps.com, enter RISK. Also, you know Hulu.com, but Hulu Plus lets you watch thousands of hit TV shows and acclaimed movies on your TV, your smartphone, your tablet. Check out exclusive content like Hulu Originals' The Awesomes, starring SNL's Seth Meyers, and Moon Boy, starring Chris O'Dowd from Bridesmaids. For only $7.99 a month, you can stream as much as you want, wherever you want. And right now, you can try Hulu Plus free for two weeks. We can go to HuluPlus.com forward slash risk. Go to HuluPlus.com forward slash risk. In a little bit, we're going to hear from one of the faculty members of the Story Studio, Mr. David Crabb. But before that, another story from Risk regular Melanie Hamlet. Always a treat to have her on. Here she is at the Risk Live show in New York with a story we call My Time in the House of Clowns. So I tend to do things, um, go to extreme measures to have new experiences uh, and adventures. And last year I got an an idea in my head that it'd be really fun to move to South America with no plan on a one-way ticket and like barely any money. So that's what I did. And I I was able to do that through uh, couchsurfing.com or .org or whatever it's called. I'm sure some of you know what that is. It's basically a website where you go on there and you look at people's profiles and their pictures and decide if they're, you know, like a normal person or like a rapist or a killer. And then you like send them a couch request. And then if they accept it, you get to go sleep on their couch. It sounds like a terrible idea, but it's actually really cool. I ended up being down there for almost eight months, and for most of that, I couch surfed, which is kind of crazy now that I think about it. But uh, anyway, uh, but it's great because you hang out with locals and you, you know, don't spend any money. So when I ended up in this town called Valparaiso, Chile, I was looking for, through profiles for somewhere to stay. And by this point in time, I'd done it for a while, and I realized that in, in South America, at least most of the people in couch surfing are dudes. And any of the women that I'd sent requests to, they never responded to me. I don't know if like it's because they're looking to hook up with only dudes. I don't know why. But anyway, only men would host me. 
So uh, I was looking at profiles, and you know to not send a request to somebody who has like, where it's like a guy where he's like not wearing a shirt, and he's like holding a beer as his profile picture, and like all the references left by couch surfers are like, you're such a great host, wink, 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 and it's all like beautiful women. You know he's fucking his couch surfers. So, um, so I found this one profile, this guy's name was Luigi, and his, uh, his profile picture was him um, on a unicycle. And, uh, and then I looked through his other pictures, and he wanted he's playing like a trumpet and like juggling, and he's a, he's a professional clown. And I'm like, well, that's the one, right? Like, like that's, that's hilarious and kind of weird and, you know, like, it's safe, right? Um, so I sent him like a, a couch request he accepted, and I showed up at his place with my backpack, and I've come to find out it's not just him. It's a whole house of clowns. Um, it's Luigi, his brother, their friends. Now, before I go on, I just want to... So in, in North America, clowns are like fucked up people. Like, they have a terrible reputation. You're like, like uh, It from Stephen King, uh, Poltergeist. Everyone has a terrible... Like, Every Law and Order SVU episode is like a clown child molester. But like in South America, clowns are really cool. They're like, they're like young and hip and have like dreadlocks and faux hawks and tattoos and they smoke a lot of pot and some of them are hot and they're like in their 20s and, and they're like performance artist clowns. They're not like wanky wanky. Wah, wah, wah. Um, I mean, they do that too, but they're more like, they're cool. Anyway, so uh, these guys were like misfits. They all like had the faux hawks, the tattoos and whatever. And so uh, it was pretty fun living with them at first. Like, they were hilarious. They taught me how to juggle and ride a unicycle. And, and they had like a sick sense of humor too. They'd make like balloon animals. And one time one of them made like, was making a mouse. They didn't speak any English, by the way. And he was making a mouse. And he decided in the middle that the, the circle he made was brown and he goes, asshole and he put it up to his mouth and he goes ah and I was like ah and he make like the dog fuck the giraffe and I was like you guys are hilarious anyway um, but there's some drawbacks to living with clowns like first of all it's like worse than living in a house of comedians like most of my friends are comedians and we're kind of exhausting people to be around because they're always doing bits and I'm just like enough with the like ah. they're also like filthy. There's like a bunch of dudes living. It, actually, by the way, I've, lived, I've worked with guys in all of my jobs, like film industry, outdoor adventure. So I'm used to hanging out with the bros and being one of the boys. And so I wasn't intimidated by this situation at all, but they're just, their place was disgusting, like more so than like a frat house. It was like crusty plates and beer cans, but then like top hats and juggling pens and like other random shit and uh they didn't pay their bills like their water bill so it was like never any hot water i don't like they stayed up all night long like they partied till like two or three in the morning and i didn't drink or do drugs anymore but you know as a couch surfing guest you kind of have to hang out with your host so i was like god when are they gonna go to bed every night and none of them spoke English, which was a real problem because my Spanish was terrible. The only one who did speak English, he wasn't actually a clown. They called him Harry Potter because he lived in, in the bedroom underneath the stairs. Um, and uh, he was like a, a gentle soul. He was like a Reiki master, and he, he spoke a little bit of English. And then there was like one, the, the, the main clown, Luigi, like the alpha clown is like the only way I know how to explain it. Um, Harry Potter said he thought he was 
bipolar. Because <laughs> I don't know how to say bipolar. And because uh, he was like a, a living embodiment of like the comedy tragedy face. Like one minute he'd be like, and then he'd be like, I was like walking on eggshells around the bipolar clown all the time. I'm like, is he in a good mood? Is he in a bad mood? It was really stressful. So it, besides all that, it was just nice to have a room, though, where I could have privacy and shut a door. Granted, it was a closet, like it was a mattress on the floor, no windows, nothing, just like a teeny tiny closet, but I had a door. And I'm used to sleeping on people's couches where I have no privacy. So I was like, whatever, I'll put up with this shit for a while. And they actually really liked me. They asked me to move in permanently, and I, I was kind of thinking about it. Um, <laughs> And uh, anyway, so one night I went, like, left to get away from the clowns, and uh, I just needed a break. And I went and saw The Hunger Games in all Spanish. I have no idea what happened, kind of, in the, the movie. Anyway, and I came home at, like, 11 o'clock at night, kind of exhausted and wanted to go to bed. And they were trying to, like, keep me up. Like, I could just tell, like, they kept distracting me when I was trying to go to bed. And then there's a knock on the door, and in walk in these two, like, huge buff clowns like wearing like muscle man shirts like they're pretty they look like chip and dale models actually like like cartoonishly buff i know they're clowns because i can they have paint like still by their ears because they didn't do a very good job washing it off and um one of them comes over and sits down right next to me immediately and he's like really eager to talk to me and his name is blue angel <laughs> and uh, and um so we he actually speaks english like better english than harry potter so i'm like so eager to just talk to someone in my own language because i'd been you know like having these like bullshit conversations in half spanish for so long that i was like yeah, you know, I was talking to him about acrobats and whatever, and it, it was okay conversation. Then it kind of started getting weird. Like he would say, that, first of all, he goes, "There's two things I love in a woman: a white woman and an older woman." <laughs> and I'm like, "How old do you think I am?" And he's like, "45." Uh, I'm like, "I was like 33 at the time." I was like, "You asshole." Anyway, and then he was like, and then I'd be like talking normal things, and then he go, he just interrupt me, and he goes. I just, I love your legs. And I was like, thanks. And he was like, they're just so big. <laughs> and I'm like, Ugh. and he said the same thing about my butt. And I'm like, this, in, in my country, that's kind of mean to say that. And he's like, but I love it. It's bit. Anyway, so finally, uh, so I was talking about the acrobats with him. I'm like, what do you do? Do you like spin around? Anyway, and uh, he's like, I show you in the kitchen. Now, the kitchen's really small, so I was like, how's he going to show me an acrobat show in the kitchen? But I went anyway. And uh, so I get in the kitchen, and he turns to me, and he goes, there's no acrobat trick. I want to kiss you. <laughs> and, and I'm like, you don't promise an acrobat trick and not follow through. What the fuck? I, it, it, and he's like, I just want to kiss you. And I'm like, well, I don't want to kiss you. And he's like, why not? Nah, nah. So we're like going back and forth. And I'm like, no, nah, I don't want to. I just want to go to bed. Because <laughs> I was like so tired. And finally, it, I was like about to leave you to go to bed. He goes, wait, wait, wait. What if I taught you to walk on stilts? Now, like... I'm sorry, I'm not going to turn down the opportunity to walk on, learn to walk on stilts from a professional clown in Chile. Like, that, like, like where are you ever going to get a chance to do that? So I was like, okay, you got me. So, uh, so we go outside and like, stilts are hard, by the way, way harder than a unicycle, like dangerous. I kept falling down. It got old after a while. And then I was like, this shit's hard. And I'm like, I'm going to bed. So I go back inside to go in bed, to go to bed. And uh, he follows me back into the hallway and he corners me. He's like, wait, 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 wait. I want to give you 
a present. And I was like, mm hmm. And he was like, I want to give you a massage. And I was like, yeah, okay. I know what a massage means. And he was like, no, no, I just want to give you a massage. Just a massage, make you feel good like a woman. A massage. And I was like, and, and like, so we started fighting back and forth. He's like, and I was like, no, I know what a massage means. And he was like, no. Nah. So back and forth, back and forth. So normally when a guy is really persistent and annoying and won't leave me alone, that part of me that's like, you don't, you never heard what no means, no means. I usually get like more like, fuck you, no, now. Like, I'm in, but I'm like so tired from traveling and living with these fucking exhausting clowns and like out of my element. And I'm like, it seems, I think some women in the audience know what I'm talking about when I'm like, it seemed almost like a better idea to say yes than to keep fighting. You know, like, I was like, fuck it, I'll just, fine, I'll say yes to the massage, then leave me alone. So I was like, okay, fine, Blue Angel, but if you're going to give me a massage, it's just a massage, I'm not doing anything to you, and you can't touch anything around here, you know, off limits. And he was like, okay, okay, okay. So we go back to my closet, and, uh, and he gives me a massage, and it's terrible and, like, half-assed, and I was like, okay, thanks, and he's like, Wait, wait, wait. I have another present. And I'm like, oh, God. He goes, so he, like, pulls his cell phone out of his pocket, and he puts on some music, and he starts to do the acrobat trick. He, I don't know how he does this in a tiny closet. There's, like, no floor space. He, like, does a handstand. His legs go up and, like, spread out. It's, he's amazing. He's actually a really good acrobat. And I was like, wow. And then when he's done, he, like, changes the music to, like, reggaeton. And he starts doing a strip tease. And he's, like, it's like, ba-bam, 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 ba-bam. He's, like, white, you know, tidy whiteies And I'm like, uh-oh. And I'm, like, laying on the bed watching this, and I'm like... Two things are happening crossing my mind. First, I'm like, okay, Melanie, how did you get yourself in this situation? And how are you going to get yourself out of this? And then the other thought crossed my mind. This is the thought that gets me in, like, so much trouble. I was like, well, (laughs) I mean, you've never hooked up with a clown before. (laughs) You know, like, when are you going to get the opportunity to ever do this again? And if if nothing else, it'd be hilarious. And, uh... So he sat down and like started kissing me, and I was like, I guess I made my decision. So uh, he starts kissing me, and I'm like, okay. And then he immediately tries to go down on me, and I'm like, hold on, <laughs> hold on, cowboy. I'm like, first of all, uh, okay, this story's about to get really fucking nasty, just so you know. He's like, uh, I'm like, first of all, I'm on my period, so, uh-uh. and then second of all, like, your fucking friends don't pay their water bill, so I haven't shaved or showered in like, days so it's just a mess down there you don't want to go anywhere near there and he's like but i want and he just goes for it and i'm like like i didn't couldn't enjoy anything because i'm just like i would never do that if i was a guy even even if i love the girl i would never do that. this is a one night stand so he like he stays down there for like a long time and then he comes back up and then he like wants me to go down on him and i was like "Uh uh-uh we had the agreement i'm not doing anything to you and he was like Okay, so then he goes back down on me, flips me over, and tries to, <laughs> tries to dunk my shitter. Like, starts licking my butthole. And I'm like, oh, God. And then he's like, tries to fuck, fuck me too. And I'm like, whoa. I'm like, no, no. Like, and finally, I like push him off me. And I'm like, ah, like I'm in shell shock almost. Like, what's happening? And, um, and, uh, and I'm like, I don't want to hook up with you. I'm sorry. And I'm like, 
I have an intestinal parasite. I have an eye infection in both eyes. I've got three cavities. I just got over the flu. I've been traveling for months. I'm really fucking tired. I just want to sleep in my tiny closet by myself. And I'm bleeding out of this hole like a gross pig. I don't want to do anything with you right now. And he was like, and he looked at me all like sad and like defeated. Like it's like Latin men do that, like that little boy thing. They're like, mm. and uh, and uh, <laughs> and he was like, well, will you at least watch me jack off? And I was like, okay. Like, you gotta give him a bow. I'm like, okay. And so he's like, he's like jacking off, and I'm like, and he's like, watch me, watch me. I'm like, I'm watching you, you know? <laughs> and he's just like, and I'm like, <laughs> and then he, and then he's like, stomach or leg, stomach or leg. And I'm like, leg, uh, leg. And he's like, all over my leg and I'm like (laughs) so then he reaches over to his like pants and pulls out some tissue and he starts like wiping it up and I was like I just I was like haha you carry tissues around to wipe up your cum everywhere you go like some like offhand comment and he was like well no I knew I was coming here tonight (laughs) and I was like wait what are you talking about he's like well uh, Luigi told me that I should come over here tonight to uh, have sex with the couch surfer. And I'm like, what? Those fucking clowns set me up? Because here's the thing. I had been couch surfing for months and like a lot of dudes had tried to sleep. I mean, I was a single woman traveling by myself all over South America. It doesn't surprise me that I'd be hit on a lot or asked to get married. But like guys had like done crazy shit. Like one of the guys that I'm couch surfing had taken a picture of me with my camera while I was sleeping. Like, one of them, like, left me in the middle of nowhere without my passport because I wouldn't, like, flirt with them. Like, they'd done crazy shit. And finally, I thought I found a home with these clowns. They were like, my bros, you know, I can trust them. I'm one of the boys. And those fuckers whored me out to their clown friends down the street. Uh, And I was pissed. And now I'm also the butt of my own joke. I'm like, this is really not as hilarious as I thought it was. Um, So anyway, I, like, go to sleep. The next morning, I wake up. He's out there eating lunch with the other clowns. His friend, the other, like, buff, Chippendale-looking clown, makes, like, a balloon flower and hands it to me. And, and Blue Angel's now ignoring me, like, high school style. So they, like, want to pass me around now. And I was like, oh, motherfucker. And, uh, and so Harry Potter comes up to me, and he was like, uh, Blue Angel said he, he sexed you. And I was like, what? I did not fuck that guy. He played with my tampon. He jizzed on my leg. He ate me out. He tried to butt fuck me. He act- and I didn't actually tell you. He stuck his finger up my butt and then went, mm, and then tried to stick it in my mouth. I was going to spare you that detail, but I don't fucking care anymore. Uh, <laughs> it's all out now. Uh, and, and I was like, but I did not fuck that clown. <laughs> and, and Harry Potter didn't understand any of that. He was like, okay. And, uh, and I was like, I'm so pissed, you know? So I went to the bathroom. I felt so dirty. And I, like, took some toilet paper and put it in the sink and got it wet because that's how I have to take showers there. And I was, like, bird bath style. And I'm washing my pink parts, you know? And then I'm washing, like, clown jizz off my fucking leg. And I'm like... And then I like I walk out into the living room and I see the bipolar clown Luigi. He's like playing one of his like that thing where you do the knife between your fingers, you know, because he's in one of his moods, you know. And and I'm like, why am I living here? What am I doing here? I'm like, 
like, I need to move out. Uh, so I decided, I, like that day, I went out, I looked for like jobs teaching English. I started looking for apartments. I like started looking for new friends. Like I basically moved out of the clown house and found a whole new life for myself. But I did find out one thing. South American clowns are just as fucked up as North American clowns. Thank you. <laughs> I'm Hoppa the Clown, I'm a clown of great renown, if it would get a laugh, I'd climb a tree. You may like my silly clothes, my fuzzy head, my turned up nose, but it's the feather in my hat that tickles me. <laughs> So, uh, the day after 9-11, I called the little French bistro downtown where I worked. I had hardly been able to get through to anyone, and I, I wasn't calling. I knew they would be closed, because everything below 14th Street was closed. But I hoped that maybe a manager would be there so that I could find out about how my coworkers were doing, if anyone had, like, reached out to anyone there. And strangely enough, this very busy, harried hostess answered. And not only were they open, but they were crowded full of people the day after 9-11. You could hear glasses breaking and busboys screaming, and she begged me to come into work because, apparently, uh, because the French Roast was one of the few places open, and all of my coworkers had packed up their U-Hauls and their pets and their girlfriends and boyfriends and left town, no one was there to work these shifts. And I decided that I would take all these shifts, and I would work doubles nonstop so that I could make hundreds of dollars to get a U-Haul and get myself the fuck out of this town just like they did. So the next few days, it was the same ritual. I would go into Manhattan, and at 14th Street, there was this huge blockade, and there was this huge guy. He was like Jabba the Hutt with like a ninja costume, like the most terrifying burkhood pro wrestler you've ever seen. It was like this full black outfit with goggles and a machine gun. And when you got to 14th Street, he would be like, where are you going? And I would just be like, I'm just trying to wait tables. Um, and he would like, and he would be like, well, where? And I was like, the French roast. And he would immediately let me buy because everyone knew the French roast. Once you got below 14th, everyone had a French roast cup of coffee. They were like the place that was open. They were owned by an Israeli sort of conglomerate and they took the 9-11 attacks very personally. If there were fucking croque monsieurs to serve, the terrorists would not win. So... So I took out my, my Texas ID and I showed it to this guy. It was the ID that I'd had for the two years since I moved to New York in 99. Uh, and I hadn't got it replaced because I moved here to be an artist and an actor and all that stuff, but I had been very busy uh, dancing at clubs and drinking at bars and working shitty jobs at French bistros that I hated. So I showed him the ID and he said, you need to get a New York license. And I said, just please let me go bring people back yet. So... I would go to the restaurant, and over those next uh, four days of working doubles, it was a, a really surreal experience because I was in this restaurant with all these locals that I had seen all the time, but now they were like in oversharing mode, right? Like they would be sitting alone, and I would go up, and they would tell me all sorts of personal stuff. Like, I'm thinking of moving back to Nebraska because I'm getting older, and I do want to have children. And, uh, and you know, like, you know, I'm in, I'm in culinary school, and I want to be a pastry chef, but I just don't know if that's my passion anymore. Like, like, the rest of the world was talking politics, and New Yorkers were, like, inward. Like, everyone was having these, like, deep, tearful, drunken conversations over candlelight. And as much as I wanted to engage with these people, I was the guy in an apron being like, would you like cheesecake? You know? So there was this wall, and, and I would just sort of take it. You know, I was like a sounding board for these people. So at the end of the four days, I had made $900. 
The last shift, I sat at the bar with uh, the Israeli bartender Yoni, and he got me just hammered on red wine. And at the end of the shift, I got up and I hugged him goodbye, and he said in my ear, something. I was like, I don't know what you're saying. And he was like, uh, and and, and he handed me this, this huge magnum of red wine, and, he, and he, he showed it to me, and he slipped it in my bag, and he said, drink to forget. And I said, that sounds good. Uh, so I went back home, and at that point, I was living in Bushwick. And Bushwick, even now, uh, is a little desolate and industrial, but in 2001, it was like a set from Mad Max. It was just, uh, it was a grim place. Um, So I was walking home, and it was like 3.30 in the morning, stumbling home drunk, and as I get to my door, I hear this and I look across the street at the artist lofts, across from my artist lofts, which just means like highly flammable nightmare, mutual living scenario. Um, And on the roof across the street, they were having a full-on fucking rave. They were playing uh, Prodigy. Do you know that band? Twisted Firestart, I'm the bitch that hates ya. You know? And I looked up, and for a minute, I was like, too soon. Do you know what I mean? But, but at the same time, I was like, if people want to like, come to my restaurant and pay like $18 for croque madames, like, they should want to dance with friends right now. Do you know what I mean? Like, who am I to judge? So I'm getting really close to the door of my building when I hear, hey, man, you got a cigarette? And I, and I look, and I just immediately like, dig into my pocket. You know, the days after 9-11 were such a weird time of like, holding doors, saying please and thank you, just really respecting and being with people, that even at like 3.30 in the morning in the Mad Max set, I just didn't even think twice. And I reached in my pocket, and before I could get my cigarettes out, I felt this body up against mine, and then I felt an arm around my neck really, really tight. And I felt this jabbing in between my ribs, and this guy in my ear said, do you feel that? That's a gun. I'm going to fucking kill you unless you give me all your money. At which point, like, I became a Kathy cartoon, and my dream bubble said, what now? You know? Um, (laughs) Because... Because it was weird, like, I'm standing there getting mugged in the few days after this horrible thing, and, like, Bushwick was weird at that point. Like, all around, blowing in the wind was weird garbage. I don't know, if if you were downtown in Brooklyn, it was really strange, because all this garbage blew over from lower Manhattan. Weird stuff, like, sort of burnt Father's Day cards, and, uh, you know, $200 lunch receipts from, like, Wall Street places, and, like confidential Morgan Stanley documents. It was just weird, you know, and you could still smell. I remember the smell in the air was, like, if any of you have a little crappy New York apartment, most of you do, you probably use it to store your pots and pans. And if you ever preheat your oven and forget, all of a sudden you're like, what's that horrible metallic chemical fire? And you're like, ah, the oven! It like smelled like that, you know? And the fact that I was getting mugged at gunpoint at that point just was blowing my mind. And he jabbed the gun in harder, and I started digging through my pockets. And I just remember saying like a loop, please don't shoot me, please don't shoot me, please don't shoot me, please don't shoot me. And I reached into my pocket and... I had my hand on the wad of money. It was a big wad of money. $900 in 20s is thick. And I looked over my shoulder, and for just a minute, my peripheral vision, I could see this guy's face. And his eyes were huge and full of water, and he was looking all around, and he was looking across the street at that rave. And I was looking across the street at that rave, thinking, please, ravesters, help me, save me, you know? But I sensed an anxiety. I could feel that his form was actually, like, trembling against my neck. And at that point, when I had my hand on the money, I thought, I cannot give this guy this money, because this is the money that will get me out of here and save me from shit like this happening to me over and over again in fucking Bushwick. This doesn't happen when you're living in your parents' garage in San Antonio, Texas, which I would be doing very soon. 
And I just wrapped my fist around the money and I plunged it into my bag, which was a mess of gum wrappers and allergy pills and notebooks and this huge magnum of wine, right, that was like shifting back and forth. And he just kept saying, give me the money, give me the money, give me the money. And he kept jabbing the gun in deeper and deeper. Right when I thought he was losing his patience, I could feel his bicep tighten against my neck. The door across the street opened. And all these horrible uh, white people with dreadlocks and glow sticks just poured out. They look like people from The Rave and The Matrix 2, that horrible Adobe rave. It's like the worst scene ever. Do you know what I mean? And there's like four of them. They're like, ah, 9-11. Like, what are you doing? You know? But they were happy, and I respected it. And more than that, I was so appreciative because the minute they were across the street from us, it was like 20 feet away, he pushed me away from him. And right as he pushed me, he said, go the fuck inside. Now, I was really drunk, A. B, I was mad. Three, C. If he wouldn't have said that to me, I might not have done what I did. It was the idea that he would do that to me right after 9-11, the audacity of him on top of that, then to give me permission to go into my own fucking house. So I turned around, and I started following him. And he was walking towards Bushwick Avenue, this very busy thoroughfare, across the street from um, the Caucasians with dreadlocks. And I started following him, and I yelled across the street, Hey! You see this guy here? He has a gun, and he just tried to mug me. At which point, one of the girls went, ah! I'll always remember the sound she made. It was like a cross between absolute terror and, are you fucking serious? It was like that. It was like that hybrid sound, you know? And I took out my phone, and I called 911, and in a real loud, confrontational voice so he could hear me, I said, she answered, she said, 911, bored as could be, because my call was nothing compared to her last four days at work, do you know what I mean? And I said, I've been mugged in Bushwick, and I'm following him. And she said, excuse me, sir. And I said, I've been mugged at gunpoint, and I'm following him now. And she's like, so you need to stop following the perpetrator. (laughs) And at this point, he's jogging, and he's looking over at me and looking to the people across the street saying, he's crazy, you know? (laughs) And I'm starting to jog now at this point, too. And, and, And the woman's still on the phone. She's like, please stop following him. And I'm like, no! I'm like full of rage, and I'm alive. I feel like fucking Braveheart. And, and she starts saying, sir, sir, well, well, what is he wearing? And I look at him, and he's wearing this red and green striped sweater and a little hat and these brown slacks. And I'm trying to process it, and she keeps asking me, and finally I just start screaming, Freddy Krueger! He looks like Freddy Krueger! And at this point, I am brandishing the magnum of wine. I'm swinging it in the air like a club. Freddy Krueger! Just screaming, right? And I'm, and I'm looking at this guy, and as he's running faster and faster, he looks over his shoulder at me, and he has this look in his eye, and no one had ever looked at me with this before, but he looked at me with fear. He was totally scared of, of, of all of this. He was terrified. And it made me feel so good. You know, because for the last four days at my job, I didn't get to tell anyone about the friends I was worried about and how much I missed my family and how much I wanted to connect with my friends and how scared I was to live here. I just was a sounding board for all these other people, you know? And what I wanted to do was bash this guy's head in with my huge magnum of wine. That's all I wanted to do was smash Freddy Krueger's face with this giant three-gallon thing of Merlot. 
And right as we get to Bushwick Avenue, he crosses the street. And right after he crosses, this huge throng of traffic separates us. And I stand there, and I watch him disappear into this housing project across the street that has this very scary sort of unlit park in the middle of it. And at that point, I kind of throw up my hands. I'm like, I can't. You win. You know, I quit. And I was also very drunk. And I sit down on the curb, and the cops come, and they put me in the car and drive me around saying, is that him? Is that him? And I'm like, really? This is police work? This is how you do this? Um, and when I get home, I look through my, my pockets and my things. You know, I have my money. I moved it. But I look in my pocket, and he stole my Texas driver's license, which is the thing you need to rent a U-Haul. It's the thing you need to drive across the country to safety. And, you know, public offices were screwed. They couldn't make you any promises about when they would get you anything. So over the next few days, I got the chance to come down a little. Uh, I had my going away party, and all my friends from uh, work that were still here came, and a bunch of other friends from this gallery I worked at, and neighbors, and it was so much fun. And in the process of talking to these people, I met new people. I got a freelance job that I didn't know that I even wanted. Uh, and other friends of mine, they had a place in Spanish Harlem. It was a third of the cost of Bushwick, and I probably wouldn't get mugged at gunpoint. And by the end of the going away party, drunkenly, I declared, I love you all, and I'm never leaving New York. <laughs> Uh, I used my wad of $900, and I moved into Spanish Harlem, and I started certain aspects of my life over again, and I've been here now for a very long time. And uh, the crazy thing was, though, a week after all this happened, my mom called me from Texas, and she said, Honey, I got this piece of mail. It, it, it's no return address, and it has your name and our address. And I was like, Well, open it, and she opened it. And inside was my Texas ID. And it was bent and broken and burnt, and it had like tire marks on it. <laughs> and attached to it um, was this little post-it note. And all it said was, whoever you are, I hope you're okay, God bless you. And um, I still can't bring myself to change it. And I know this sounds really crazy, but I think that part of the reason I keep it is because it makes me feel more like a New Yorker than anything else. Thank you. it up this week this is liam howard 
behind me now. And we just heard a story from David Crabb, who teaches storytelling for us at thestorystudio.org. There's new workshops in storytelling for the stage, for business, for personal growth, starting up in November, December, January. There's also our workshops for business staffs. There's the one-on-one training I do over Skype. If you want to get a loved one a wonderful gift for the holidays, get them a few one-on-one sessions with me. It's a wonderful way to get creative and practice self-expression. And we got to say thanks this episode to Hulu Plus, where you can binge on thousands of hit shows and movies anytime, anywhere, on your TV, PC, smartphone, tablet. Get an extended free trial of Hulu Plus when you go to HuluPlus.com forward slash risk. That's HuluPlus.com forward slash risk. And don't forget the most important people involved with risk are you, the listeners. We want your story pitches, especially right now, stories that are set during the holidays. Go to the submissions page at risk-show.com and you can follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Risk Show. Follow me on Twitter at TheKevinAllison. And please share this show with your friends. Spread the word about Risk. Remember finally that Risk is listener-supported. We could not do all that we do without the generous support of our fans. We're a proud member of the Maximum Fun Network of Podcasts, so to show your support, go to MaximumFun.org slash donate and be sure to earmark your contribution for risk. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. jizz off my fucking leg and I'm like